Acts um, 6, 1 through 7. Aquellos días, como creían en el número de los discípulos, murmuraron los griegos en contra de los hebreos y de las viudas que aquellos desatendían en las distribuciones diarias. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing the numbers and complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Entonces los doce invocaron la multitud de los discípulos diciendo, no es justo que dejemos la palabra para servir la mesa. And the twelve summoned <clears throat> the full number of disciples. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Buscar pues hermanos entre vosotros siete, vuestro testimonio lleno del Espíritu Santo y sabiduría, quien encarguémonos de este trabajo. I'm sorry, <laughs> I got lost. Okay. Um, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Y nosotros perseguiremos en la oración del ministerio y de la palabra. Um, but we will devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the word. Agradando pues la a toda la multitud que eligieron a Esteban, varón lleno de fe, Espíritu Santo, Felipe, Procoro, Nicanor, Timor, Penamar, Nicolás, Proselito de la Antoquia. And what they said pleased whole gathered and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Procorius and Nicanor and Timon and Perminus and Nicholas, a proselyte and Antioch. Los cuales presentaron ante los apóstoles quien oraban impusieron la mano. These they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Creían que la palabra del Señor y el número de los discípulos se multiplicaban grandemente en Jerusalén. También muchos los sacerdotes obedecían la fe. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Great job, guys. Thanks for reading that. Uh, open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 6, the passage that Monica and Julio just read for us. Uh, in this series, uh, Life Together, we have been talking about community, what it's like to be in community, what it's like to be uh, particularly, specifically in Christian community. Uh, you know, there's lots of communities around us. You can belong to teams and clubs and book clubs and 
organizations, but uh, Christian community is unique in some ways. Uh, it's similar in some ways, but it's unique in some very deep and important and profound ways. And so we have been exploring uh, what the Bible teaches us about what gets in the way of community. Uh, that the writer of James tells us that what causes issues in community is not first and foremost that I don't like you or that we disagree or that we argue, but what causes issues are desires beneath the surface. In other words, our inner life. Uh, so we have been looking as a community how the way of Jesus leads us to a particular inner life following Jesus that changes how we then approach each other how we interact with each other, right? Because how you handle conflict is a, is a deeply emotional thing. Right? How you handle disagreements is a deeply emotional and spiritual thing. And so uh, Jesus invites us into something different. Uh, so we've looked over the past three weeks at some of these. We looked at expectations in week one, how your expectations of community can either make or break community. And Christian community is founded by Jesus uh, and sustained by his power, which means that we should expect that we're going to be imperfect. It's going to be a little bit bumpy, uh, and when that happens, it is an invitation to, as the writer of Hebrews says, draw near to Jesus. Draw near to him and place our hope in him. Uh, week two, we looked at boundaries, uh, how God has given each one of us a certain degree of authority and responsibility. And so when we come into community, knowing where I start and end and where you start and end is how we love and how we care for one another, as Paul writes, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Last week, we looked at our attitude about other people. Uh, that it becomes very easy to have a self-righteous attitude, uh, to compare ourselves to other people and say, I'm better because I do these things or have these opinions or I see this uh, issue in this kind of way. And that actually creates exclusion. It creates an in-group and an out-group. Uh, but the parable Jesus told taught us to have radical humility that comes not from us beating ourselves up, but from a big view of God that leads us to see ourselves realistically and short-circuits the whole tendency that we have to compare ourselves with other people. All these are inner things that transform how we think about ourselves and others. Uh, this morning, we're going to now kind of turn, this is the last week in this series, we're going to turn and look a little bit about how we think about each other and how we interact with one another. Uh, because uh, as soon as you enter into community, you're going to discover this reality, that the people around you are different than you. Uh, you get into a marriage, you realize, oh, I married somebody who's different than me. We have different opinions and personalities and energy levels. You get into community and you realize, oh, we all have a different story. We all have different experiences. We have different opinions and preferences, right? And uh, that's hard enough to deal with, right? Of I've got this personality, you've got that personality, and we clash. Uh, but this morning, I want to look at a bigger kind of reality, a bigger kind of difference, and that has to do with uh, cultural differences. Uh, that when we come into community, particularly in the world that we live in now, uh, it's not just a matter of, you know, you're an ENFP and I'm an ISFJ, or you're an introvert and I'm an extrovert, it's, it, there's some deeper realities. Right? It's a beneath-the-surface kind of thing that, much like our expectations, which we talked about in week one, uh, you don't realize that they're there until you feel some kind of tension. Right? It's kind of like this. If you've ever taken a sociology class, probably on day one or week one, they've put an iceberg up on the screen. Uh, and the iceberg idea is kind of there's surface culture, uh, right? which is when you interact with someone from a different culture, the things that are obvious. Uh, different language, uh, different ways of dressing, uh, maybe a celebration of certain holidays that you had never thought about or considered before, uh, different types of food and different types of music. These are the, the very obvious things that, uh, you know, if you take a, uh, a class in high school, right, these are the things that are on the wall. These are the things that you talk about first about a different culture or language. Uh, and so these are all obvious things, but beneath the surface is what sociologists call a deep culture, 
And deep culture are the things that we don't see right away, but actually shape a ton of our way of moving through the world. Right? Things like our concept of time. If I invite you to my house at 6 o'clock, your culture might say, okay, I need to arrive there at 5.55. But someone else's culture might say, that's like a window between 6 and 8 p.m. That's a cultural kind of thing. Uh, even kind of concepts of communication. Right? When we talk, when we interact, are we close or are we far? Are we making eye contact? Are we talking directly? Are we talking around the issue? Uh, how close do we stand? Uh, concepts of authority. What gives someone authority in a community? Is it expertise? Is it education? Is it uh, knowledge? What is it that allows someone to lead? You see, these are beneath the surface kinds of things. Uh, but when you spend time, here's the thing, when you spend time with people who are just like you, uh, you often don't have to think about those things. Those things become normal, right? So when you spend time with people who are just like you and we say six o'clock, everyone knows, okay, that's kind of like, I mean, here's kind of like 610, right? But like, uh, we have this kind of shared sense of culture. And what happens is we tend to think that this is normal. And, and what happens then is when we interact with someone from a different culture or a different background, they come in and what they feel is culture, uh, we think of as normal. And so someone can very quickly experience the feeling of being an outsider, even though we would say we're a very welcoming community. Because beneath the surface is this reality of cultural differences. Right? And so how we navigate this is, I think, really important. If we, as a church, we've said one of our priorities, one of our values is valuing all people as made in the image of God, which means celebrating our differences, then how we navigate this is really, really important for how we think about life together in community. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about this this morning, uh, of how we can work through our cultural differences uh, in a way that leads to us uh, being community in the way of Jesus. Right? Uh, and we're not left alone to figure this out. Uh, that's why we're looking to the Bible. Uh, because whether or not you know it, the Bible speaks a lot to this. Uh, there's a lot in the Bible that has to talk about uh, cultural differences, ethnic differences, and how the way of Jesus transforms how we see other people. All right, so we're going to get into that. But first, I just want to uh, talk or kind of provide a little bit of language. Because I think when we talk about ethnicity, uh, which is what we're going to talk about, we also need to talk about race. Uh, and so, uh, just to provide a little bit of definition, because obviously these are huge concepts, right? You take a whole class on these things, whole books on these things. Uh, and so just as we talk about this this morning, I just want to define two terms for you. Uh, the first term is the term race. Uh, and race is uh, defined in this kind of way, a socially constructed grouping of people based on external physical features, most commonly in our world, skin color. And so race has historically been primarily used to subjugate or oppress people. Right? That's kind of become a defining mark. In fact, the word race doesn't even appear in the English language until the 16th century when it's used in this kind of way, which also happened to be when colonialism is coming in. Right? So uh, what this does, though, what this has done is it's taken an aspect of ethnicity, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and made it everything. And so what that does is it erases uh, culture, it raises ethnic difference, right? and not just for people of color, but also for people like me. Uh, my ancestors are Norwegian and Welsh and English, um, but I have very little connection to that identity. Because in our world, race has become kind of the defining category for people. And so my ancestors kind of moved away from their ethnic identity. Right? So it has an impact on all of us, 
wherever we find ourselves. But the deeper reality, and here, the other thing about race is this. Uh, the reason why you won't find it in the pages of the Bible is because it's a human invention. We took one aspect of identity and made it everything, a value judgment, so that we could judge other people and suppress or even enslave other people. But the biblical concept of ethnicity is throughout all the pages of the Bible. And ethnicity is, is deeper than that. Ethnicity, I would define it this way, a shared grouping of people based on common language, culture, nationality, ancestry, and more. Right, so ethnicity is we understand that we belong together. And we have shared practices, shared language, shared ancestry. And so it is a shared understanding of identity that defines a distinct people group. And the, the word ethnicity comes from the Greek word ethnos, which most times when you're reading the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, anytime you come across the word nation, it's not talking about nation state, it's the Greek word ethnos. God's heart is deeply concerned for ethnicity, and ethnicity within the context of the people of God. And so what I want to show you this morning is how the early church navigated cultural differences. Uh, because the early church was aware of these things. They were very aware of these things. They lived in a very multicultural, multi-ethnic kind of world. And how they navigated these things teaches us some really important things about how we can navigate these things as well. Because if God's heart is for the nations, for the ethnos, then how we think about the mission of Jesus and what it means to be the church as an outpost of that mission of Jesus in this world is deeply important for how we think about what Jesus is really all about. Right, and that brings us to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, if you have it open in front of you, uh, we're just going to kind of walk through this story of the early church. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, says this, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. All right, let's stop right there. Uh, what are these days? What are these days that the writer is talking about? If you know the story of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church. All right, so at the end of the Gospels, Jesus has overcome sin, death, and the grave. He ascends into heaven, and he sends his disciples to preach the good news of the resurrection. But of course, they're freaked out and scared, so they're huddled in a room. So God has, sends his Holy Spirit and sends them out of the room to preach the Gospel, to preach the news that Jesus has overcome the grave. But in Acts 2, we find that the Holy Spirit allows and empowers these apostles to preach this message in a way that everyone can hear it, in their heart language. Or in other words, the language that their culture of origin, their family of origin spoke, the language that they first learned. Now, they could have all spoken Greek. Greek was like English in that day. Everyone kind of knew it. It was the language of trade. But instead, God's Holy Spirit allows the disciples to speak in such a way that every person there hears it in their own language. Which means that from day one of the church, the church has been multi-ethnic. Because the Holy Spirit calls these people to Jesus, and they hear and respond to him in their language that they know. And so on day one, this church is now gathered together in Jerusalem, and they're multi-ethnic and multicultural and having to figure that out, right? which is a challenge. It's a challenge for them, it's a challenge now. Now, between chapters 2 and chapter 6, uh, there's a few stories of the apostles healing and preaching and being arrested, but we're still in Jerusalem. So that's when the, when the writer says, now in these days, that's where we are. So look again in chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
All right, so there's an, there's an issue, there's a tension, there's a complaint that rises in the church between two groups of people. Uh, the first group is the Hellenists, the second group is the Hebrews. Now, your translation might say Greek-speaking Jews uh, and native Hebrews. Uh, but these two groups uh, had sort of distinct cultural and ethnic identities. Uh, the Hellenists were, they could trace their history, they could trace their family line to Israel at some point in the past, but most of their life, or even all of their life, had been spent in the larger Greek world. History tells us that there was a large community of Hellenistic Jews in Alexandria, Egypt. And because they are native-speaking Greek, it means that they were probably born outside of Israel. Uh, and they had adopted not just the language, but the customs, uh, the attitudes, the, the, the way of dress of the Greek-speaking world. And so they find themselves in Jerusalem as outsiders, as minorities in this larger majority culture. So they would travel through the grocery stores and the, the language on the signs would be a second language to them, not the language of their hearts. The cultural customs might be somewhat familiar to them because maybe their grandma practiced those things, but they're foreign to them. They find themselves in this country uh, as uh, cultural and ethnic outsiders. And they are in the church as followers of Jesus and they find this tension arising between the Hebrews. The Hebrews would be native-speaking Jews. They were born and raised in Jerusalem, or born and raised in Israel. They knew the culture. They knew the language. They knew the practices. They were very ingrained in the world. They could leave church on Sunday, and all the signs in the neighborhood made sense to them. All the interactions in the majority culture worked for them. They fit in this world that they, they find themselves in. And so in this church that is following the way of Jesus... Notice first that these identities are not erased, right? that they are still Hellenists who follow Jesus, or they are still Hebrews who follow Jesus. And they find themselves now in this community, and tension has bubbled up. Tension over a neglect or a discrimination based on this daily distribution. There was some kind of way that the church was caring, particularly for widows in this church, and those who are outsiders in this minority culture were being discriminated against. And so this tension rises up, and verse 2, it comes to the 12 disciples, the first original followers of Jesus, the one empowered by the Holy Spirit to lead the church. So let's look at how they handled this. Verse 2, it says, The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. They summoned the full number of the disciples. Now this could be anywhere from 120 to even up to 3,000. Depends on if this is like everyone who's in or like the original group that's in. But that's a lot of people. Right? So what that tells us is that the apostles took this issue seriously. Right? They took this issue seriously. In fact, in the story of Acts, this is really the first kind of all-church meeting. Right? You know when you, the church calls an all-church meeting, you're like, something's going down. I mean, something's really important, right? Or there's information that's being shared. That's what's happening here in this community is that the apostles take this concern seriously, which means that they listened to the concerns of the Hellenists. They listened to the concerns of this outsider group. The, the disciples were all like insider Jews. Now, they had different opinions and perspectives, but they were all homeland Israelites. So they took the time to listen to this group that was experiencing this discrimination. So they thought it was important enough to the church to deal with. But also, I think there's something really important in this that we can draw from. And that's that their concern is less about intent and more about effect. Right? They're concerned less about intent and more about effect. What I mean by that is this. 
Uh, there's not really any indication that they did, they did like a thorough investigation. Right, to see, okay, what did you intend? Did you intend to discriminate? Did you intend to exclude? Now they take it at face value that this is happening. And their concern is less about what, why someone did something and more about, okay, the effect of this decision or this action is causing pain or discrimination. And so they take that seriously. Right? They take the concerns and the issues of this minority party seriously. Right? And here's why that matters, right? Because uh, when you find yourself in cultural tension, right, or there's kind of something that happens that you realize is kind of a cultural thing, we tend to appeal to intent, right? Like, well, I didn't intend it that way. Or I didn't intend to be offensive with what I just said, or I didn't intend, you know, to cause you harm. And, and, and that's perfectly fine to do, but what we often are trying to do is we're trying to absolve ourselves of guilt, Say, well, because I didn't intend it, therefore it didn't matter. But that's not how the church handles this. They say, whether or not you intended, whether or not there is an intentional discrimination, the fact is that there is a discrimination that's happening, and so we need to deal with the effect of this action. Right? Because what tends to happen is when I say, well, I didn't intend it that way, or they didn't intend it that way, or, or the system wasn't built with the intent to do that, what we are saying is that your experience of pain or discrimination is wrong. That your assessment of reality is off. But I see it clearly, and so therefore, because I didn't intend it that way, you're wrong. Which, if you're experiencing pain or discrimination, is really disempowering. That would be really frustrating for them. Right? And so you may not intend for your action to be exclusionary or discriminatory or prejudiced. You may not intend it. But if that is the experience or the effect of that in the community, your intention only matters in some ways. What matters is that they experience the effect of your actions, and it, the experience of that is discriminatory or painful. Right? So let me just, all right, I'm just going to get really real for a second. Um, when, when our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, who have the same Holy Spirit, and who believe in the gospel of Jesus, who are people of color, when they say they experience discrimination in our world, right, or when they say that they experience injustice in our world, or when they, when they communicate fear about the world that we live in, right, when we, uh, as white people, I'm, I'm speaking for myself, when we, do, when we say, well, that's not, that wasn't the intent of that, or I'm sure they didn't mean it that way, what we are saying is, is easier for me to put myself in the shoes of someone who is a non-Christian who looks like me than it is for me to put myself in your shoes as my brother and sister in Christ. And I say, well, let me explain this for you. Let me, let me make sense of this for you. Well, hold on. Someone is experiencing pain. Someone is experiencing exclusion based on an aspect of their identity as a person of color. And so when I say, well, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way. I'm negating their pain. I'm negating their experience, and I'm putting myself in the shoes more like someone who's not a follower of Jesus than my brother or sister who is. Right. Uh, Pastor Derwin Gray, he wrote a book uh, on this. He, he, he said this, one of the greatest gifts, one of the greatest gifts you can give your brothers and sisters in Christ as we heal the racial divide is to listen to their stories with compassion. Right. Compassion means to suffer with. Right. It may not fit in your paradigm. It may not fit in your categories. You may have opinions about it. But when we try to explain away people's pain or people's experience of discrimination, what we're saying is that doesn't matter. 
And instead, what matters is that this fits my paradigm. I remember in seminary, uh, I had the opportunity to be one of the few white students in one of my classes. Uh, and, and in this class, it was a class on ethics, Christian ethics. Uh, and uh, one day in particular, uh, person after person after person could share a story of how they had been discriminated against, followed, intimidated, like pastors and ministers and deacons and leaders in the church can share story after story of living in a racialized world. So it's important that we pay attention and listen to that because what we do when we say is we are, we're saying, as my brother and sister in Christ, I may not understand this, I may not understand everything about where you're coming from, but I'm going to sit. I'm going to honor you as my brother or sister in Christ. That's what the apostles do for the Hellenists. They take time to sit and to address the issue, to listen to the concern of the Hellenists. Now, second thing, where do they go? How do they deal with this? Right. The second thing that they do is they take the gospel seriously. Right. They take the issue seriously, but the second thing that they do is they take the gospel seriously. Look at verse 2. They say this, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, when you first read that, it sounds a little bit dismissive, right? It's like, well, we don't have time for that. I had to go back to my Bible study. I got a sermon coming up on Sunday, right? And it sounds a little bit like this is a secondary issue for them. But what I want you to see, and I think this is really important to get, is I think the reason why we read that and it sounds dismissive, or it sounds like they're not taking it important, is because we tend to think that the Bible and preaching the Word of God does not have some solutions for the issues of ethnic unity. We tend to think that the Bible is like, well, it's kind of just confusing about the issue, or just kind of, what we need is like social science, or what we need is, is, is outside voices, that the Bible doesn't have what we need to navigate this issue, right? So we tend to read what they're saying and say, we're going to preach the Bible, we're going to pray, and we're like, that's not going to solve the issue. Why? Because in our hearts and our minds, we've been convinced that the Bible has nothing to say about this. That the gospel does not have power in this particular situation, these particular questions, but that's not how they see it. They say the most important thing that they could do as the apostles, as the leaders of the church, is to continue to preach the gospel, to continue to follow the leading of the Spirit, to continue to pray for the church, and to deal with the problem. Both of these things go hand in hand. And so they take the gospel seriously. They say the gospel changes not just how I think about myself and my private standing with Jesus, it also changes how I think about the issues of the world. It changes how I think about the unity of the church and what binds us together. You see, at the heart of this, I think, is, is, is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Right, now, we're going to get a little, a, little, a little seminary here for a second. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is, is a core belief of Christians. And the, the belief is that, that Scripture, the, the inspired Word of God, is sufficient to lead me into a saving knowledge of Jesus. Right? What that means is, like, I can go to Goodyear Metro Park, and I can walk the trails, and I can feel really inspired about creation. I can feel really like, like, man, there has to be a creator, there has to be a purpose, there has to be order in the universe. And so what is that? I reach out, I'm trying to find God. But I will not find the good news of the salvation that Jesus offers in Goodyear Metro Park. I will find it in the scriptures. But the Bible shows me my need. It shows me that hope and salvation can only be found in Jesus. 
And so apart from the, the scriptures, I'm left with just a little good feeling about Goodyear Metro Park and myself. I need the Bible. I need the inspired word of God to lead me into a saving knowledge of Jesus so that my inner life can be transformed. I can be reconciled to God and then have the power through the Holy Spirit to deal with the questions and the issues of our day. So if we gave up preaching the gospel to serve tables, we would be disempowering ourselves. We'd have no power in this issue. But here's the thing, though. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, that the Bible is what I need for a saving knowledge of Jesus and to follow him in faithfulness, does not mean I plug my ears to all other knowledge. Right? I was listening to a sermon by my friend Chase Jones. He planted a church in my hometown, uh, and he was teaching about this with his church last summer. Uh, it was one of their, their aspirations to be a multi-ethnic church. And as a pastor of color, he's got a lot of, a lot of passion and wisdom in this particular area. But he said this. Uh, we'll get to that quote in just a second. But he said this. The, the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture tends to be both oppressed and suppressed. What he means by that is, is we tend to suppress it, which is where we say, well, the Bible has nothing to say about this. It doesn't have anything to say about this. Right? So what we need is social science, and we need research, and we need the insight of people who don't follow Jesus to help us understand how to find racial and ethnic unity. On the other hand, he says it's oppressed. And what he said as a, as a pastor of color is anytime he talked about his experience of racial discrimination, or anytime he tried to address the questions of racial and ethnic unity in the church, he was often met with this claim, just preach the gospel. To say those things have nothing to do with following Jesus. But he said that's not what the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture means. He said this, this is a direct quote from, uh, from his, uh, his sermon. He says, The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is not a call to ignore all other knowledge that isn't explicitly stated within Scripture, but it is the lens through which we must view all other knowledge. When we look at the world through gospel lenses, then we realize that many of the secular theories and ideologies that we cannot adhere to fully while claiming to follow Jesus, we realize that if we devote ourselves to being led by prayer and the word, then there are parts of extra-biblical and even secular ideologies that do, not, that do contain non-salvific knowledge. In other words, knowledge that doesn't have to do with the salvation we find in Jesus. That is not only in alignment with the scriptures, but is helpful in us moving forward toward a complete picture of gospel-centered race and ethnicity. You see, what he's saying is this. The gospel is the power, and we know the power of the gospel through the sufficiency of scripture and the leading of the Spirit. But when it comes to how we serve tables, if you will, right, what, is it, what does hospitality look like? Right, how do we create a space of belonging? How do we create a space of, uh, of equity in this community? Right? That's why if you look at the qualifications for people, it is both they're full of the Spirit and they're full of wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how we navigate the world. How do we make sense of the gray areas of life? Like We find our authority through the gospel of Jesus, and we use this book, if you will, as the lens through which we view all of their knowledge. Which means that if I'm reading something about uh, racial or ethnic unity and it contradicts or challenges the message of Jesus, uh, I should throw that out. Like that mic, apparently. <laughs> but if it doesn't contradict the, knowledge, the, the saving knowledge of Jesus or the scriptures, and it helps me understand the world that I belong to in a better kind of way, then that's something that I should seek to understand and integrate through wisdom and discernment. Right, so so there's, that's why I think that qualification is that they're full of the Spirit and wisdom is really important. Right? Because in that, we begin to understand what it takes to create a true place of belonging in our community. 
so I want to just I want to just give you a couple of thoughts on how the Bible addresses this issue. Uh, now I originally had 15 verses. I have four verses because lunch is coming. All right, so I just want you to understand that God's heart is for the ethnos. It is for ethnicity. It is for the church of God representing every tribe, tongue, people, and language. And we often miss that, particularly if you're like me and you grew up in a community that was full of people just like you. Why? Because you didn't have to think about it. You didn't have to talk about it because we were all in this space of normal. But if we are going to be a community of Jesus that looks like and reflects our neighbor, that looks like and reflects our city, we're going to have to deal with this. And to understand what God's word has to say about this, I think is really important. All right, so first, first uh, passage, first verse that uh, deals with this is Matthew 28. When Jesus gives the mission to the church, what does he say? He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He's, he's talking about ethnicity, right? He says, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That is ethnos of all ethnic groups. He's not talking about, you know, go to the U.S. and go to Mexico. He's talking about distinct ethnic groups. So the mission of Jesus is going to lead us to that. Uh, second, Acts 17. Acts 17. Uh, if you ever want to make sense of the Old Testament, Paul summarizes the Old Testament in one verse. <laughs> it's this verse. All right, Acts 17, verses 26 and 27. Paul is preaching on Mars Hill, uh, and he's preaching to a diverse crowd, a diverse group of people, and, and he says this. He says, and he, that's God, made from one man every nation, that's every ethnos, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So what he's saying, he's retelling the whole story of the Old Testament. God stamped his image on the first human. And that has continued to spread, and that has led to the ethnic diversity that we see in our world today. That that is not an accident, but that is in fact part of God's good plan. Right? So ethnicity is not an accident. Uh, it's not, skin color is not an accident. Language is not an accident. These things are woven into how God has intended the world to be made. And here's why. He says that they should seek God in the hope that they might find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. What that means is that within each distinct ethnic and cultural group throughout history, God has been working and even planting seeds of the gospel within each ethnic and cultural group so that they might become aware of who God is. Right? Just think about that. Like Every ethnic group, every cultural group throughout history, God has placed there on purpose and has placed into their culture seeds of the gospel that will lead them to seek after God. Right? This is why it's so destructive when we, when we buy into ideologies that say that one ethnic group or one cultural group is more important or more closer to God than others. It just directly contradicts what Paul says here about how God has made the world. And so any kind of ethnic supremacy or racial supremacy runs counter to God and what he has been doing throughout history. And so when we buy into even the inkling of it, we are allowing this space in our heart and our mind that, that is leading us to not just be apathetic towards the mission of God, but actually work against the mission of God. Last verse, uh, sorry, last two verses uh, in Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. Uh, it says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. 
and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is where we are going, church. We're in front of the throne of Jesus. It's not all English. It's not all white people. It is every tribe, every language, actively being spoken in that moment. So heaven is not colorblind. It's not ethnic blind. It's not language blind. It embraces all of these things and brings them into the worship of who Jesus is before his throne. So if you don't like people who are different than you now, you're not going to like heaven. Last thing, last thing, very last page of the Bible. Very last page of the Bible, Revelation 21, 24. This verse is so subtle and yet so powerful. So this is the vision of the new Jerusalem. In other words, where we're going to spend eternity. At the, at the seat of, of God's authority and his reign, Jesus is now king over all things. Sin and death have been vanquished. And here's what it says. Uh, verse 24, by its light, this is the city of God, the nations will walk, the ethnos will walk. So they're still there in the kingdom of God. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, here's, I think, what that means. All right, so in God's new creation, Ethnic and cultural diversity still exist. But what is happening is that worship before the throne of God, it says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I think that what that is implying is that, is that all of the best of every ethnic and cultural group will be brought before the throne of God. All the best elements of culture, all the best food, all the best art, all the, all the best expressions of every culture throughout the history of humanity will be brought before the throne of the Lamb of God as worship to him. Right? Just imagine that. Right? Where all the best of all that God has given humanity to create is brought in worship to him. And that's how we will live in eternity at the throne of this God. So God's heart is Desperately for the nations, desperately for ethnic unity, centered under who Jesus is. Because of the heart of the gospel of Jesus is this truth, that we were apart from God, we were other than God, and he reconciled us to himself. He died so that you and I could be reconciled to him. And if we think that that reconciliation stops there and doesn't lead to us seeking reconciliation with those who are different than we don't understand the gospel. Or as John Perkins put it this way, the problem is that there is a gaping hole in our gospel. We have preached a gospel that leaves us believing that we can be reconciled to God, but not reconciled to our Christian brothers and sisters who don't look like us. Brothers and sisters with whom we are, in fact, one blood. This is where we're going. And so to follow the mission of Jesus or to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is what we are praying for to start seeing in our world now. And so we better get on with it. Lastly, last way the church navigates this. Last way the church navigates this is through sharing leadership. Through sharing leadership. Look at back in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, it says this. Uh, they, they instruct the community to pick leaders. And it says, uh, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Right, so the church's solution, the apostles' solution to navigating this is to expand their leadership, right, to give power to other people to help lead and guide this church. Now, here's the interesting thing, is that if you read through this list of names, 
the majority of these names are Hellenistic Greek names. Which means that this leadership team that was appointed by this church to deal with this issue of discrimination within the church is representative of, and even majority representative of, those who had experienced discrimination within the church. That the community of Jesus is tasked with identifying leaders and they identify people who are not just, it's not just that they belong to that community, they're full of the Holy Spirit, they have wisdom, but they also represent those who had experienced exclusion. Now, if it was just, okay, we need someone from this group, this tokenism, or we say, well, let's just find someone who looks like this community, but that's not how the church handles this. They say, find someone full of the Holy Spirit with wisdom and good repute. And then the community also says, and here are these folks who understand what we've gone through, who understand the discrimination that we've experienced, and who probably have good ideas of how to make Hellenists feel welcome in our church. So they share power within this community. And this isn't the last time that the church does this. One last verse. I throw, I'm throwing this one in there. Uh, Acts 13. Acts 13. This is the last one, I promise. Acts 13, uh, we get another kind of summary statement of the church. It says this, Now that we're in the church at Antioch, so we're in Syria now, so we were in Jerusalem, we're now in Syria, prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So just, if you were to put this on a map, here, here's where we would be. We're in Syria, uh, and on this team is Barnabas. Barnabas was a Levite. We met him in Acts chapter 2, or 3, and he, so he is deeply Jewish. Uh, you also have then Simeon. Uh, or uh, called Niger. Now, Niger is a Latin-derived word indicating a dark complexion. Uh, So he was probably a a black follower of Jesus from Africa who was on the leadership team of this church in Syria. Then you have Lucius the Cyrenian, uh, who is from Cyrene, which is a city in northern Africa around Egypt. You also then have Mananian, who uh, seems to be a deeply embedded person in the Roman power structure. Like, he was, he was a friend uh, and, a, and a, a member of the court of Herod. He may have even been his foster brother. That's how closely connected he was to that. And then you have Saul, who became Paul, who was a Jew and a religious fundamentalist. In Syria, leading this church. Right, so the church understands, and I think even in Acts, the church celebrates these identities because this is indicative that the mission that Jesus gave the church in Matthew is coming to fruition as people from every tribe, tongue, language, and people group become part of the community of Jesus. So this is the trajectory that the church is on. Now, I just want to offer some some thoughts uh, to put ourselves in the shoes of this church. So let's just kind of say we're in this church in Acts chapter 6, and this leadership team has now kind of been put in place. What would it mean for that church uh, to come under the authority of this leadership team? What would it mean for us as a community of Jesus to lean into these kinds of things. And so I just have three things that I want us to think about uh, as I close. Uh, how would they, what would they have to do? I think the first thing that they would have to do is they'd have to listen. Right? They'd have to take time. We saw the apostles do this with this church. They took time to listen, to listen to the issues, the concern, the pain, the frustrations, taking time to listen about the burdens that other people carry, to understand how can we address this? How can we deal with this? How can we, as we looked a couple weeks ago, bear this burden for you, along with you as you follow Jesus? And so I think for us in this world that we find ourselves in, listening is super important because oftentimes we go to listen to explain, 
rather than listen to empathize. I want to hear your story, and I'm going to explain why it's wrong. I'm going to explain my opinion on it. I'm going to explain my perspective on it. But listening is to do as these apostles did, to hear the story, to hear the pain, to understand the heartbreak, to understand what it's like to be a Hellenist in a Hebrew world, whatever that situation looks like. But I think this could also mean listening to, it would require listening to people who are full of the Holy Spirit and who have wisdom. So I want to offer, this is just my personal personal offering of, I think, three resources that have been really helpful for me uh, in growing in this. So there's no verse in the Bible that says, read this book. Uh, And these are books and resources that are human-made, so there's going to be issues. So if you read something, you're like, I don't like that, send me an email, but uh, you get what I'm saying, right? So just three resources. Okay, the first is a book called Reading While Black uh, by Esau McCauley. He's a biblical scholar uh, who wrote this book on his experience as a biblical scholar uh, and someone deeply devoted to the way of Jesus and also uh, seeking to understand the Bible. Uh, and so uh, he has just, I think, some really good thoughts on, on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, who's a person of color in the world that we live in, uh, and just some really profound insights on the Bible. He has a whole chapter in this book on the theology of policing that I think is worth the cost of the book alone. Uh, that just helps uh, understand uh, where he's coming from on that. The second uh, is a book called White Awake by Pastor Daniel Hill. He planted a, uh, as a white pastor, planted a church in a predominantly uh, neighborhood of uh, people of color, and uh, soon began to realize that he didn't know a lot of things. And so this is his process of, uh, of unlearning, of recognizing that there are some things that he thought were normal that were cultural, and growing to understand uh, God's heart for the nations and what that looks like for him as a white pastor in that particular community. Uh, the last is a resource called the Jew 3 Project. Uh, and the Jude 3 Project is started by Lisa Fields, and uh, she started this uh, because she found that uh, as a person of color in her community, there was a lot of resistance to Christianity. There's kind of this idea that Christianity is the white man's religion, and so to be a part of it or to follow Jesus is to somehow betray your identity as a person of color. And so this is a really fantastic resource for like questions that the black community is, is asking uh, that has opened my eyes up in a lot of ways to things that I hadn't even thought about before. Uh, So this is a really good resource for you or a friend that you might know uh, who maybe is wrestling with some of those questions. So just three resources to listen to. But the second practice for us, not only is listening, but also discernment. Uh, Discernment. Discernment is uh, evaluating things. Not just accepting things at face value, but of discernment. So even like I gave those three things on that screen. Like if you dig hard enough, you can probably find something that you disagree with. That's good. You should. Because as Christians, we're called to be discerning. We're called to be discerning, I think, on three levels. Discernment of the scriptures, which is always coming back to the Bible. And maybe for you, you had never considered God's heart for ethnicity before. And so reading back through the pages of scriptures to come to a place where you're saying, what is God's heart for the nations? What is God's heart for ethnic unity? And how do I understand that? It's discernment of the scriptures. The second is discernment of the deceptiveness of sin. Uh, that Satan, the enemy of God, cannot create anything, so he can only distort things. And so oftentimes his lies or his strongholds will be something that is true and yet twisted just enough to lead you away from Jesus. And so be discerning of this deceptiveness of sin in your own life, in your own reading of Scripture, in your own understanding of, of the world around you, that he wants to get you off course and he will get you off course with the slightest little twist. So be discerning... Of sin, And then with that, to be discerning of my culture and my opinions. 
Every culture, every ethnicity has within it seeds of the gospel. But it also has ways in which it runs counter to the gospel. That includes you and your family of origin, your culture of origin. So be discerning of this. As I read the scriptures, I'll become aware of the sin in my own life so that I can then properly understand how to live in the world as someone whose primary identity is a follower of Jesus and everything else is secondary to that. So be discerning. The last is the practice of submission. Now, submission is a really scary word. We've, had a, we've talked a lot about a lot of scary words today, but submission uh, is uh, not just saying, okay, whatever, I don't exist anymore. Submission is to go back to our boundaries conversation is I'm choosing, I'm choosing to step back and allow someone else to lead, to allow someone else to guide me or to uh, have the front seat or to show me what I did not see before. Right? In this church, uh, when this team of primarily Hellenists is now tasked with leading this ministry, uh, they probably are going to lead it differently than the Hebrews did. But the apostles appoint them to lead, which means that the church then is invited to follow their lead. Even if you have an opinion about how it should be done, even if you think it should be done a different way, submission says, my opinion is not the most important thing right now. It says, my preferences are not the most important thing right now. The most important thing right now is that we follow Jesus and we are a community in which everyone can follow Jesus as well. As Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of reverence for what Christ is doing in you. I don't need to be heard right now. I don't need to be in charge right now. So that someone else can, and they will probably do it better than you, or maybe even differently than you, which will only help you get better and better understand how Jesus is working. See, this is really difficult, right? I think if we figured this out, like we could write books and podcasts and make movies and everyone would pay us lots of money to tell them how to do it. But I think it, it has to start here in our community. To say, if we believe, as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, in the heights as it is in heaven, on my block as it is in heaven, in my neighborhood as it is in heaven, then we have to have God's heart for people. And God's heart for people embraces how he has made them as people made in the image of God. Regardless, in the midst of whatever culture or ethnicity or color, that's part of God's good plan. And so as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, let's move to see that happen. Let me pray for us. God, you have created each one of us in your image. And God's sin so often wants to take that and tweak it, twist it, distort it, but God, your heart is for the nations, for the ethnos. And so God, Spirit, would you show us this morning uh, the ways in which uh, we have believed lies, uh, the ways in which uh, we have not trusted you, the ways in which we have built identities uh, in comparison to other people. God, all these things tie together. Uh, but Jesus, you died to reconcile us to God and then to lead us to be ambassadors of your kingdom. And so Holy Spirit, this morning, would you open our eyes to maybe things we hadn't seen before? Would you open our hearts to maybe people that we had uh, judged or, or excluded before? Would you move our feet and our hands to build the community that you want us to? A community that begins to look like your kingdom coming. We look forward to that day when we will sit before the throne of Jesus and every tribe, tongue, language, and people group is worshiping at the throne because this is all about you, Jesus.
So we pray all this in your name. Amen.